Hi, Angela. Hi, Catherine. Do you want to hear one of my absolute favorite things I learned when working on this episode? Yes. So you know that really stupid, cheesy phrase, money can't buy you happiness? Yes, only, I think, ever said by people who have money. Yeah, and it turns out it's a total lie (laughs) because there is an amount of money that can buy you happiness. Yes, (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) What's the number? What is the number? Okay, so based on variation, where you live, who's in your family, whatever, $75,000 a year. Yeah, okay. I mean, that... I'm thinking about it. I'm doing some math in my head. Have I even ever made that as a salaried person, as a writer? (laughs) I'm not sure that I have. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting because the most important part of the story, honestly, is that a majority of Americans do not make $75,000 a year. Yeah, that's the story. (laughs) Right. If we know that that is the amount of money to have sort of maximum happiness, like why can't all Americans have that amount of money? Because then we'd all be maximally happy all the time. God forbid. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. Every mother works, now more than ever, and we're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. And we're in no danger of running out of material. 2020, at least it's almost over. (laughs) I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Gardas. Today's guest is Mia Birdsong. She is 47, lives in Oakland, California, and has a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old. She's a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project, an activist and author of the book, How We Show Up, and the creator of the podcast, More Than Enough, that she made in partnership with The Nation, where she interviews people who've experienced poverty about the idea of guaranteed income. Mia also proudly notes that, like Kamala Harris, she is a child of a Jamaican immigrant. So throughout this episode, you'll hear us talking about guaranteed income or universal basic income, also known as UBI. Right. It's the idea that people get a set amount of money monthly as sort of an income floor with no strings attached about how they're supposed to use it. We wanted to talk to Mia because she has a powerful way of challenging some deeply held ideas that are so ingrained in us as Americans, we probably don't even realize that they're culturally conditioned. Right. I think listeners are pretty well-versed at this point in the huge challenges mothers face. I mean, if they've listened to anything we've done so far this season. We've just been living in America. <laughs> just <laughs> opening their eyes in the morning. And, you know, it's not just mothers. It's it's all of society is facing so many challenges. And yeah. we've had a lot of doom and gloom this year. I mean, that's Let's be honest, that's like a theme of 2020. But one of the reasons I created the double shift in the first place is to challenge assumptions, but also plant seeds about how we can change and do things differently in the future. And part of that challenging needs to be about really big stuff, the basic tenets of our society, Mm -hmm. especially how we see mothers and families and wealth and privilege and how that all you know, fits together. So let's zoom out here on some very American assumptions with Mia Birdsong. People have to earn their humanity. We're like human beings in America. We're like you all, if you want to be fully human, you have to earn that. You have to demonstrate that you are deserving. And when I was doing the research for the podcast that I did on guaranteed income, this just like hit me in the face 
full force. The conversation that we really need to have is one about deservedness, because we believe as Americans that basic things like access to food and shelter and education and healthcare are things that we have to earn, as opposed to recognizing them just as human rights. And because we think that we have to earn them, we also think that you can unearn them, that you can be a person and not actually be deserving of those things. This is our season finale. And despite everything everyone has been through this year, we wanted to make an episode that was forward-thinking and solutions-oriented. I think we all need glimmers of hope and possibility right now. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as uh, while we're recording this uh, here in Washington, our governor just announced a new four weeks of lockdown. So I spent the weekend <gasps> canceling Thanksgiving <laughs> with family and friends and, and reworking all of that. And I've heard from two friends in the last week who have been laid off mm. from their jobs. So, I mean, we don't want to deny the reality of how hard things are right now for so many people, but I am excited. This is something we talked about when we first got together to create the season of The Double Shift. Um, we want to give people ways to think outside of things, especially as things seem to get smaller, you know, to think big, to think from a place of abundance about what is still possible, what we can do for each other. And I'm excited to do that with this conversation about guaranteed income. Yes, totally. We are going to turn back now to Mia with an excerpt from her podcast, More Than Enough, about her background and upbringing. Um, she talks about her experiences learning about some of the less well-known ideas of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in college. I was in a Black Studies class, and we were discussing King's perspective on economic justice. In his final book, King wrote... I'm now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. I heard this, and I thought, that is absurd. Part of why I scoffed at the idea of guaranteed income has to do with how I'd gotten to where I was. I came to college from Rochester, New York, where I'd been raised by my mom. We were working class when I was growing up. I always was aware that money was tight. I got a lot of my clothes from Goodwill until I got my first job at 13. From elementary school on, I was bussed with a handful of other black kids to a mostly white school in the suburbs. Like so many kids who were told they benefited from affirmative action, I'd been instilled with the belief that my responsibility was to get an education, which would lead to a career, which was essential to the role I was meant to fulfill as a credit to my race. Free money went against everything I learned about being a respectable citizen. But people change, and our ideas evolve. I no longer wear steel-toed Doc Martens and suspenders. I generally don't give a shit about respectability, and I no longer think guaranteed income is absurd. So Mia has had to grapple with the contradictions of her own experience— growing up as a Black girl raised by a working-class single mom, and who she is now, which is a married mom with a house— two kids, and a dog. Her own biography is the kind of story that people hold up and say, hey, see, if Mia can make it, anyone can make it. Mia is incredibly thoughtful about these contradictions. There's a lot of ego that is tied up for us in believing that we have earned whatever success that we have, that our hard work paid off. And I think that because I'm someone who tries to hold multiplicity, 
I can be proud of my hard work and feel like, you know, I have things because I worked hard and know that like, I totally got lucky and that that doesn't mean that people who don't have the things that I have, like shouldn't have them. I don't think that I deserve those things because I worked hard. I think I deserve those things because I deserve them because I'm alive. And I'm also satisfied by labor that I do to make things happen. And, you know, like I wrote a book, right? I'm totally proud of myself for, that was a lot of fucking words. I am so (laughs) proud of myself for writing all of those words. Many of them are like strung together in beautiful sentences. And I'm just like, that's great. Super proud of myself for that. Um, This idea that like I did a bunch of hard work to get something and that somebody else is going to have the same thing without having done all that hard work, like makes me feel a kind of way. Right. But then when I reflect back on like what that is, I'm like, it doesn't take away from me. Mm. Like I remember when some members of the squad were like tweeting a lot about getting rid of education debt. And there were people who were like, I had to work two jobs for 10 years to pay off my education debt. And I was like, you got a shitty deal. So you think that other people should have that? Like, what's the point? I'm like, the point is that we make things better for people in the future. Not that they, we, we make them suffer in the same way that we did. Like if I had a hard time paying off my education debt, it doesn't make it like less hard if someone else never has to do that. Right. I'm like, if anything, I know how shitty it is. So therefore, I should want people in the future to not have to do that. And I think that weird dissonance that we have is partly because of the ways in which we don't think about other people as our people, right? We don't think about, you know, one of the like deep parts of American culture is individualism, like to a toxic degree, right? This idea that freedom is about not having any kind of responsibility for anybody else other than yourself is a very American idea. And one of the things that I talk about in the book and that just blew me away was finding out that freedom used to like be understood in a very, very different way and that freedom and friendship have the same root and that freedom was understood as the well-being you achieve from being in community with other people that like you throw your lot in together and you work collectively to make sure that everyone is taken care of. And that is how you achieve liberation. And that's antithetical to how American culture thinks of it. And that is something I'm deeply interested in thinking about changing. Well, this idea sort of of how we think about each other and can we make decisions that are less about our own individual success, like uh, immediately taps into ideas about how we frame our electoral choices. So, you know, the perennial question that Americans are asked in election years are, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Like that's sort of the refrain that we hear all the time. And how do you think we, we change this mentality, like about it just being about whether you alone are better off. It's about expanding what we mean when we say, are you better off? Mm -hmm. Right? So one, it is both the thing that you're talking about, which is that you're not just talking about yourself as an individual, but that you're talking about like, is your family better off? Is your, are your loved ones better off? Is your community better off? Is your city better off? So there's that piece. But then it's also, I think, understanding that my ability to be better off is very much dependent on other people. Like the fact that there are unhoused people who I have as neighbors is bad for me. 
Like the fact that I live in a house doesn't change that it is. I mean, it's obviously not as bad for me as it is for them. Let's be clear, but it is not good for me that I have neighbors who do not have shelter. So part of the calculus there is like so many people define their better offness as uh, economically. It's about how much money they have, but I would gladly have less money if it meant that there were fewer people who had to live in tents on the sidewalk. Yeah. And if we can kind of get people to understand what we get when more people in our society are taken care of, even if it's just that you're hedging your bets, at some point you might be homeless or like at some point you're definitely going to be uh, in need of care, right? Like you're going to probably have disabilities. (laughs) Um, You're going to get old, like you're going to need something. And if we don't have systems that like are taking care of people now, they're not going to exist for you either. So better off is not just about you in this one moment. It is about you in the future too. I mean, I feel like there are just a million ways in which we can expand people's understanding of that question. And there's really only one shitty way to understand it. Throughout the season, and really throughout all three seasons of The Double Shift, we've been talking about when you don't have universal systems that support everyone, whether it's paidly for all or universal childcare or health insurance, you make existing inequalities worse. All of these basic things people need become a matrix of resources and luck about whether it's available to you or not. And access to money, regardless of how you got it or whether or not you quote-unquote earned it, confers status and worthiness on you. With the government and private sector set up to make it easier for wealthy people to build on their wealth and harder for poor people to get out of poverty. Here's Mia from More Than Enough. Right now, we basically have two separate systems, one for poor people and one for everyone else. For example... When I bought my home in 2010, I just bought it. I got a life insurance payment when my dad died earlier that year, which I used for a down payment. Because I had that money, the system worked well for me, like I deserved a house. Mortgage approved, keys exchanged, the end. No questions about my facility with money. Access to money meant I was left alone to do what I wanted. On top of that, I qualified for a state-run first-time homebuyers program that gave me $10,000 no strings attached. Then I think about a family that I worked with years ago. They too wanted to access a first-time homebuyers program. This one was city-run and specifically for low-income families. But in order to just find out if you even qualified, you had to go through 30-something hours of classes and all the adults in the household had to attend. This family spent months completing the classes, hauling themselves around town on the bus and navigating their work schedules and making sure someone else was home to take care of their kids. So they finally finish all the classes, and they have an appointment with a program counselor to determine their eligibility. In this 10-minute meeting, they were told they didn't qualify. After all of that effort, they didn't even qualify. Can you imagine if the bank made you go through 30 hours of classes before they'd tell you if you qualified for a mortgage? This family worked way harder than I did to realize their dream of homeownership. But I had cash, so I got a house. (laughs) 
you've brought to light a term that I wasn't familiar with, but I think is really powerful, American dreamism. And so everyone's heard of the American dream. What, what is American dreamism? So it's really my like shorthand for talking about patriarchy, capitalism, and white supremacy um, without having to say all those words. Um, <laughs> I love it. I'm going to start using so it. so <laughs> much of, of kind of what we think of as the American dream is like super seductive and sounds really, really good, but it's more accessible to people who are straight and white and male and already well off. It requires anybody who doesn't have those identities to approximate them in some way, right? We have to narrow ourselves in some way. It holds up a very specific, narrow, dysfunctional form of family, which is the insular nuclear family. It creates an orientation that success requires not just that you win, but that other people lose, right? So you're in competition. Um, It is deeply binary. It's all about toxic individualism, right? It's all about that you're fully responsible for your success um, and therefore fully responsible for your failure, that you can practice the (laughs) gravity-defying process of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, like being, you know, the self-made man, like all that shit. And we've exported this idea broadly. And we have a nation of people who are basically failing at the American dream, but who are constantly told that it's possible, right? And part of what we do is we hold up these stories that are really exceptions. And we love them, especially if like me, you know, there's some kind of like rags to riches story, right? Like, and we have lots of examples of them. And we can all name like dozens of them. And that makes it seem, well, then it's totally possible. And I'm like, but there are millions and millions of people (laughs) who are not exceptions. And by definition, most of us are average. Like most of (laughs) us are not going to, you know, achieve those things. So one, I'm like, nobody should have to be exceptional in order to get access to well-funded education or insulin or just like some basic shit that we all should have. And if you fit every single stereotype of what it means to be a poor person, if you are lazy, if you are 50 years old and you spend your day playing video games and smoking pot in your mother's basement, you still deserve all of those things. And that's what I what I feel like we miss. And I feel like I missed this, right? Like I did this TED Talk in 2015 called The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True. And part of what I was trying to do was push back against the narrative that people are poor because they don't work hard. Part of it was about being really clear about all of the kind of systemic barriers that exist for you if you're poor that are exacerbated by white supremacy and patriarchy. All that's true. And part of the kind of trap that I feel like I fell into and what I didn't emphasize enough is that even if you do not work, if you're poor and you don't work hard, right, you still don't deserve to suffer because you don't have access to basic human rights. And that I feel like is one of the hardest things for us to grapple with. We'll be back with more from Mia Birdsong, talking about guaranteed income, why it works, and why this could be such a revolutionary idea for mothers and families.
So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. We're back with Mia Birdsong. I'm Catherine Goldstein here with Angela Garbez. So... Many people first heard the idea of universal basic income from the presidential campaign of Andrew Yang and his unexpectedly strong showing <laughs> in a crowded Democratic primary yeah. field. Like he was kind of like a, a, one of the hot tickets at the uh, those like mega debates. I think you remember, Angela. I remember. I remember that he told Asian people that we should uh, dress more in red, white and blue to show how American we are. Okay, well, we're, we're going <laughs> to leave that aside. We're going to leave that aside for the moment. <laughs> 
So <laughs> Yang's pitch, you know, his whole platform was basically that UBI was going to be an essential policy solution to continue to both grow the economy and to deal with the huge rises in unemployment we're likely to experience as a result of automation coming to industries like manufacturing and trucking. But UBI could actually have a huge impact beyond just sort of the coming automation revolution. Yeah, and I think this is the benefit of having someone enter the field who's, you know, not a traditional politician, right? You come with an outside idea, but that's actually not a new idea. So forms of guaranteed income have been floating around for centuries. But in the 20th century, it was an idea that civil rights and women's rights activists advocated for as a way to deal with systemic discrimination against Black people and to better value women's work in the home and also make them less reliant on male breadwinners. So, yeah, there's tons of data and experiments on guaranteed income over decades um, from all over the world. And given the huge amount of instability right now, it's getting even more attention in the COVID era. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the $1,200 CARES Act check that most people got earlier this year is an example of widespread direct cash payments as an economic stabilizer. We got one, and even though it barely covered expenses, it did help. It definitely helped us. So we're, of course, specifically interested in how UBI could impact mothers, especially in this moment. What if mothers who were unable to find work or were forced to give up employment because of caregiving responsibilities, sound familiar, still had a basic income? Since women had been disproportionately affected by the COVID recession, which is putting it mildly, UBI aimed at mothers could be really impactful. So one pilot program that we're particularly interested in is the Magnolia Mothers Trust. It's in um, Jackson, Mississippi. And it started pretty small, but it's been really successful. And they just expanded it this year to over 100 families. And it's aimed at Black mothers who live in public housing. And this is one of the poorest parts of the country. And and I was actually reading about one of the participants who lives below the poverty line, even though she works full-time. At a daycare center, mm. does this remind you of any of our earlier episodes? I mean, bringing it full circle, this is I the reality for so many women of color and people who work in the childcare industry. So they expanded the program just coincidentally right before COVID hit, which has really helped stabilize people's, you know, precarious situations and given a lot of peace of mind. And so you know, for the people who are getting this money. So the data on UBI overall shows that basically It improves health, happiness, family stability. I mean, all good. Like, that sounds great. (laughs) And it doesn't (laughs) decrease labor participation, meaning basically, like, if people get $1,000 checks per month, they don't, like, quit their jobs and just eat bonbons for the rest of their lives. (laughs) It has no negative impact on labor participation. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I think that's a huge piece of it that probably people want to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. But also— Giving people money means they are less poor. <laughs> like, that is the takeaway. <laughs> you mean making people fill out an endless number of forms and spend hours on the phone and limiting what food they're allowed to buy with, like, fake money is doesn't make them less poor? <laughs> this is what I love about thinking about UBI and talking about it with Mia is really these things that seem so revolutionary are actually quite simple and logical, right? Yeah. So research shows that $1,000 a month 
plus a $250 credit per month per child would vastly decrease the racial wealth gap in this country. And it would take our poverty rate from 12% to 2%. And the biggest poverty reduction would be on families of color with single parents. I think that is such an important point. There's so much conversation about how do we reduce poverty, but this very, very simple program would virtually eliminate poverty in this country. Yeah. Which is just like kind of mind-blowing that it's so simple and yet we haven't done it on a really large scale yet. And I think that this is an idea that has huge implications beyond just targeting people who live in extreme poverty. I keep thinking about when mothers don't have economic independence, it makes it let's say, harder to leave abusive relationships. It Mm -hmm. makes it harder for mothers to have autonomy to make, you know, good decisions for themselves or their kids or prioritize their own education or career goals. And, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just keep sort of dreaming about this guaranteed income idea. And what if coming out of this crisis, all that mothers in particular have had to sacrifice, they could have, we could have a guaranteed economic floor through an initiative that's proven to work. (laughs) Proven to work. (laughs) Yes. Sign me up. (laughs) I mean, I can already hear, I I really don't like having to have this side of the conversation, so I don't want to both sides it. But skeptics, of course, could ask, you know, like, how are we going to pay for this? But like so many things, such as a social safety net, hello, um, we have so much wealth in this country. We could pay for these things if we wanted to. If we valued it, if we valued domestic labor, things like that, just being, just existing. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Mia. And she talks about this in More Than Enough, how, yes, guaranteed income is definitely, it's, as you said, a proven policy idea, right? So that's a policy. But she talks about it really as a provocation. And that is so significant to me, the way that it it pushes us into really more uncomfortable, deeper questions about who we are, like what we think we deserve and who deserves what. And who's valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it forces us to ask those things about ourselves too, right? And I think that there's a discomfort that you have to sit in with that. And I know that these ideas really sound out there to some people, but, you know, programs like Social Security are a version of this. Yep. (laughs) We just think think it's it's normal, right? (laughs) Yeah. Let's reframe that. Why are we okay with that, but not this? Right. So... Here's Mia on why guaranteed income is more effective than other more common bureaucratic programs. Cash works. It's the most flexible thing that we have. People get to use it for exactly what it is that they need it for. We're talking about adults, and adults generally know what it is that they need to do in their lives. But that aside, we know how important it is because those of us who have it use it all the time in order to live. (laughs) right? We don't need any more data on what it means for people to have cash. I mean, and we could extend this to if we were to make guarantees around housing. When people have guaranteed housing, the thing that happens is they stop being homeless. And we know that because all of us who have it live in our houses. (laughs) I mean, the conversations (laughs) that I have are so mind-numbing to me because we act as if people who do not have access to those things, who are largely people who are poor, are like a slightly different species from everybody else. And we have to figure out how they're going to function in some experiment if they have the shit that the rest of us already do have. And I'm like, all you need to do, look what we do. (laughs) We go about our lives. And for sure, 
because we are human and because we are, you know, we're not a monolith, like people are going to do all kinds of shit. But by and large, what people do is the stuff that they need to do. And even if somebody's like, I'm going to take my guaranteed income and my guaranteed housing and my guaranteed medical care, and I'm going to sit in this house for the rest of my life and I'm going to spend my money on PS, whatever number they're up to, PS4s and play video games and I'm going to have takeout pizza and that's all I'm going to do. I don't give a shit. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Do whatever you want to do with your life. That's like the ultimate like twist on freedom, you know, like that's like the most anti-American version of freedom. It's like you can truly do whatever you want and you're not tied to capitalist, a capitalist job. Part of what I think would actually happen, right, is I'm like, I'm like, no one's going to do that, right? Like when I think about my work, I'm like, I think about social contracts. One is what our institutions and systems owe us. As far as I'm concerned, guaranteeing our basic human rights is what they're responsible for. They're responsible mm-hmm. for providing us with health care, by which I mean like physical and mental health care. They're, they're responsible for providing us with quality education, with housing, with capital, because we need to buy shit, right? Those kinds of things. And then there's what we owe each other. The things that government can't do for us. So if I get COVID, right... My government should make sure that I get the kind of health care that Trump got, right? The helicopter ride health care. Like, that's what I should get. I should get that kind of health care. But while I'm, you know, quarantining in my house, the government's not going to bring me soup. The government's not going to bring me some books to read because I'm bored. The government's not going to get on a Zoom call with my kids for an hour, right? Like my friends, my neighbors, my family are going to do those things. So there are these ways in which there's the stuff that we owe each other. So if we are doing our job, which is to care for not just like our loved ones, but like, you know, the people who are closest to geographically, like our neighbors, if I live next door to pizza video game dude, I'm going to check in on him. It's the responsibility of the people who are in community with him to provide the kind of care that government and institutions can't. And I think that's the other thing that we don't think about when it comes to freedom is what our responsibilities are and who we're accountable to. Because we think of freedom as being like, I'm not responsible for anybody except myself, and that's bullshit. In her time talking with people around the country, Mia also found what just regular and unremarkable stuff people spent their guaranteed income on. Sometimes people pay off debt. Sometimes people get their car fixed so they can go to work or they get a better car. Sometimes people put it toward their kids' education. Sometimes they put it toward their own education. Sometimes they start businesses. Sometimes they are able to pay every month for their medication, right, their prescriptions, as opposed to only being able to pay every other month. Sometimes people go to the dentist. It's just like all the things that cash allow you to do. And, I mean, it's so simple, the shift that happens in people's lives. People save money to move out. Like people are saving money to buy homes or to get new apartments. People go on vacation, which means that they go to see family that live a state over who they haven't seen in like 10 years or their children have never met. They help out their family members. They loan money to friends and family. They 
pay for their mother's medication because she can't afford it because she's on social security and has not enough money. I mean, like a bazillion things that people do. And it's not like the whole time they're putting money toward one thing mm-hmm. in the same way in which in your lives, in which there are all of our lives, right? There are these kind of opportunities that present themselves that a little money helps with. And then there are these things that are, I want to say crises because they're not always crisis, but you know, there are these things that need taken care of that present themselves that money allows us to take care of those things. And it's the same stuff. It is a really, it's really pedestrian actually. Like it's, I mean, I think people are often looking for the like story of here's somebody's life. And then a year later, it looks like this, right? Like they're looking for like this kind of trajectory. And for sure, like some people are like, I'm going to take every single one of these checks and I'm going to like put it here and then I'm going to use it for this thing. But largely it's just that like, it just, it raises the floor Mm -hmm. that people are sitting on. Well, I wanted to ask about, so there's the financial stuff, which is what you were saying. It's pedestrian Mm -hmm. and it's mundane. It's like just what people do with money. But Can we talk for a minute about what happens mentally, emotionally? Sure. Psychologically for people and like what that opens up. I mean, if any of us have ever worried whether or not we're going to have enough money to get to the end of the month, right? To pay rent, buy groceries, put gas in the car, like whatever it is. If any of you have ever had to, um, like, are worried about being able to pay for medication that you need regularly, those things are incredibly stressful. You know, I remember talking to this parent whose daughter had, unbeknownst to her, tried out for cheerleading. And she, like, made the team. And she was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for the uniform. <laughs> you get your guaranteed income, then, like, you some, an expense like that comes up, and you're like, okay, I can cover that. So she both was feeling, like, this combination of being really, really proud of her daughter, but also, like, anxious that she was going to, like, fail her by not being able to support this thing that she achieved, right? So in a society in which cash, right, is how the vast majority of us access the things that we need, not having cash means that you don't have what you need, and that is absolutely stressful. It requires paying attention to something constantly, that you can't use that part of your brain for other stuff. Um, there is legitimate and important research on mm-hmm. like the toxicity of stress and how harmful it is. I mean, I just think about what all of us have been experiencing for the last four years and like the constant feeling of fear and stress and like what else, what's going to happen next. Right. And living that way, we're not, our bodies were not meant to have cortisol flowing through them constantly. It's bad for us. But what I think we don't talk about as much, and I don't know if there's research on this, honestly, but what I experienced when I talked with people who were experiencing economic injustice, people who are poor, when I talk with folks about what it is they want for their lives, it was very easy for people to step out of their kind of daily lived experience of stressing about money and think like what they would want and what they would do. So I think that we often pathologize folks when we talk about the toxicity of stress or like just anybody's experience of being poor ends up kind of framing people as broken in some way. And I think we don't talk enough about how quickly people can heal and move forward when they're given either the actual stuff they need, which is money, or just the space to be thinking about what that is. And 
those were some of the most beautiful conversations I had when I talked to people about what it is that they would do if they didn't have to worry about money anymore. And I wasn't even talking specifically about, you know, if you got a thousand dollars a month, which is what most people kind of think about as guaranteed income is. I was just like, if you didn't have to worry about money, like how would your life be different? And what would you do? People wanted to take their kids to meet their parents. They wanted to go back to school. They wanted to move out of public housing for sure. If I was talking to people who lived in public housing and like, drive to a creek and go fishing. People want to sit on their porch with a drink and watch the sunset. It was really about people's ability to care for themselves and their families and their communities that opened up. And part of what I love about the work that I've done, both in talking with people, but also some of the research that's happened, is that when people who are poor, when that change happens where they they're like they get they get some money, they're able to take care of them and their household, kind of whoever they consider family, then people's focus immediately turns outward and f- they focus on their community. And I just think that's so beautiful because part of what it points out to me is how damaged people who are wealthy are <laughs> because they're in a position where they're continually paying for things that the rest of us get from community. And it creates a kind of isolation and like cuts folks off from part of who that what it means to be human, which is to be in relationship and connection with other people, which is to be interdependent. So you're, it requires that you actually depend on other human beings, not because you pay them for something, but because you're in community with them. And how amazing it is to see just how quickly people are, are immediately like kind of inherently understand that the well-being of the people around them impacts them. And I just think that's beautiful. If you'd like to learn more about Guaranteed Income or Mia Birdsong's work, please check out our show notes for links to her book, which is called How We Show Up, and her podcast called More Than Enough, which she made in partnership with The Nation, which she graciously let us use some clips from. I highly recommend both. And one more thing. This is our season finale, and The Double Shift exists to do real journalism and reporting that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America. If this work speaks to you and you want to support the mission of what we do and to be sure mothers' voices are heard in important ways, consider becoming a member of The Double Shift. This week, members are getting some great bonus content from me, Mia, and Angela about self-care during this intense time. Mia is kind of a low-key self-care guru. This is some real talk you do not want to miss. The Double Shift is a scrappy, independent media company, and every single person who becomes a member makes a big difference in our ability to make this show. It would mean so much to me, personally, if you would join. It starts at $5 a month. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Since this is the finale, this is my chance to be sappy about all the people who helped make the season possible. Our co-host this season is Angela Garbez. Angela, thank you for taking this leap and coming on this journey with me. You are amazing. Our senior producer, Rachel McCarthy, she's listening right now. Rachel is the unsung hero of The Double Shift. She has two kids in virtual elementary school, a preschooler, and a frontline healthcare worker husband. And she was the rock of this season. Rachel, I could not have ever dreamed of doing this without you. 
thank you to the rest of our awesome team. We are produced by Asal Sanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Schreffel. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson, Eric Newsom, and Lauren Smith-Brody. Our music is by Travis Morrison, who supports me in fighting the good fight for mothers everywhere. I love you, honey. We are funded in part through the generous support of the Ford Foundation and Acton Family Giving. And you are members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. The Double Shift.